Off the Beat with Brett Jensen is presented by Felix Savadas Mercedes-Benz of South Charlotte, Charlotte's premier Mercedes-Benz dealer and the Carolinas' number one volume sales leader. Over 300 new and 200 pre-owned vehicles always available. Visit mbcharlotte.com. All right, everybody, welcome to another edition of Off the Beat with Brett Jensen. I'm your host, Brett Jensen. And in this episode, we're going to be talking to Sherry Lynch, one of the most important women in radio over the last 25 years. She's exceedingly iconic in the way she's been able to open up about her life while maintaining a sense of entertainment. I'm also going to talk about some relationship stuff that happened with me. Every week, I like to give maybe some advice or helpful hints on how to handle your relationship, either with your wife or your significant other. Well, this time, something crazy happened to me, and it happened recently over the Christmas holidays. We're going to talk about that. But first, in each podcast, I like to give you some behind-the-scenes action of things that are happening while I'm chasing the stories, things that you never hear about. And I'm going to give you an example of something that happened when I was a sports reporter and how I developed my best source while covering the Clemson Tigers. It was right around 2005. And the Clemson Tigers had just hired a new defensive coordinator by the name of Vic Koning. He had a lot of success when he was at Troy. He had been the former head coach at the University of Wyoming. He was a very respected defensive mind. So right after he gets hired, he's speaking at a touchdown club in downtown Greenville at the Embassy Suites. And which is common during a lot of these things, he's telling jokes to lighten up the mood and break the ice with the crowd. And there's probably three, 400 people there. And I'm in the very back and I'm the only media person there. And that's a very important part to the story. I'm the only media person there covering this luncheon at the Embassy Suites in downtown Greenville where the new defensive coordinator is speaking to the Clemson faithful. So in the midst of his conversations with the people, he starts talking about last year's defense, which obviously he was not a part of. He starts talking about a defensive lineman who earlier had gotten shot in the leg during a fight at a Waffle House in downtown Clemson. So while talking about this player who was a starter, he says... The only contact he made last year was with that bullet at the Waffle House. And everyone starts laughing. And I'm a little surprised by this going, he just threw a defensive lineman that he's getting ready to coach under the bus. And he's making light of the situation that he got shot. Now, the guy who got shot had non-life-threatening injuries, was no big deal life-wise. And later on, he starts talking about the defensive backs and specifically naming one or two. And then he uses the term, man, they couldn't play dead in a cowboy and Indian movie, meaning that they were very, very bad. Just in case you were wondering what it meant. Anyways, so he continues to talk and talk and talk. And at the end of the segment, when he's done, like 30 minutes later, a lot of the fans are going up there trying to get him to autograph footballs and meeting him and shaking his hand. I go up to him and I introduce myself as Brett Jensen. I'm a sports reporter. I cover Clemson on a day-to-day basis. And you could almost see the blood drain out of his face. He was a little nervous. He's like, "Uh uh-oh. And everyone leaves, and he finally pulls me to the side, and he says, he says, hey, look, do me a favor. Don't report any of that stuff that I said about the kid being shot in the leg and how that's the only contact he made with anything and how the secondary and the defensive backs couldn't play dead in a Cowboy and Indian movie. And I was like, well, you know, I sort of need to report this. It's kind of a big deal that you said this, and I know that you're new at all. You know, look, I, I don't want to get off on the wrong foot with you, but this is kind of a big deal that you said this. 
And it's not like I was the only one here. Yes, I'm the only media person here, but you sent it to like 300 people that was open to whomever wanted to come. And I'm like, okay, look, how about we do this? Whenever I need something confirmed or some information off the record, how about you be my source? That way, you know, you can trust me to not reveal my sources if I'm not talking about what happened here today. And that way I know that it's coming from a legitimate person who has the inside information. And after a couple of seconds, he thought about it and he said, you know what? That's fine. You know, just just don't burn me. Don't throw me under the bus. I said, no, 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 of course not. I said, I'm never going to reveal to anybody who my sources are. And so he said, okay, great. And shortly thereafter, some major news would happen. And I would text him and say at 10 o'clock at night going, hey, is this true that such and such, such and such, such and such? And he would either respond yes or no. And sometimes he would flush out and be a little bit more specific on what was actually going on. But it was a great working environment, and we actually got along very, very well, and we became actually pretty decent friends. I would hook him up with some tickets to like NASCAR races when his dad came to town. So we actually got along really, really well. But it was that moment at the Embassy Suites in downtown Greenville where I had him over a barrel, and I could have burned him sideways, but I didn't. I said, okay, look, you really, really don't want me to write about something. I really need someone on the inside to help me out with information concerning the football team at Clemson. So why don't we help each other out? And it worked out beautifully. After he left Clemson, he wound up being a defensive coordinator at Illinois, and then he went to North Carolina, and now I think he's back at Troy. He's a super nice guy. He's very, very talented at what he does, and he wound up trusting me, and I wound up trusting him, and it worked out perfectly. All right, coming up next is my interview with Sherry Lynch. You hear her every single morning on the Bob and Sherry Show, over 50 stations coast to coast and all over the world on the Armed Forces Radio Network. She is open and she is brutally honest and she's hysterical. You want to listen to her next right here on Off the Beat with Brett Jensen. Joining me now here on Off the Beat with Brett Jensen, Sherry Lynch, who is one of the most important women in radio over the last 25 years. You can hear her daily on over 50 radio stations coast to coast and all over the world on the Armed Forces Radio Network. Without further ado, it is my honor to bring in Sherry Lynch. All right, Sherry, so here's the thing. I I grew up here, and I remember when you first came on radio, and I don't want to talk about radio or anything like that because I like to talk about things outside of your person or your professional life. So, but the one thing that I noticed, and this involves your personal life, is that, and I I like to call you and Howard Stern the same thing in terms of you were reality TV before reality TV because both of you talk a lot about your personal life, but you've been very open with your personal life from day one. Did you ever catch a lot of feedback or flack from that? Like, were, were, you, were you ever hesitant from doing that? Well, you know, it's funny. It didn't really, I didn't really understand what it meant to be on the radio for a lot of reasons. For starters, I grew up without much mass media. So I didn't have um, my own personal relationship with listening to radio. And I had never thought I would end up in that career. And I had never even like really been in a school play or anything. I'd never been a performer. And when you work in radio, you don't see the audience. You're in typically a small windowless room with maybe one or two, in my case, three other people. And it's easy to forget that there are people out there listening. So from the very beginning, what was going out on the radio was really just a conversation that I was having with my partner, Bob Lacey. And in the flow of it, 
you know, our show is very much improvisational and unscripted. And the flow of it, you you don't realize sometimes what you're disclosing. Um, so that's on the that's the that's one part of the answer. The second part of the answer is when you grow up in this sort of chaos and violence and turbulence that I did, and your you know your father's being perp walked on the action news. Um, you have a couple of ways that you could go in life. You could retreat and have um, absolute iron privacy walls around yourself. Or you could just say, listen, before you can use it against me, I'm going to put it out there. No one is ever, I'm not going to keep any secrets because secrets um, and shame end up having like so much power over your life and your freedom. And I didn't want to live that way. So it was probably a combination of one, did not really understand that people were listening. And two, had made a decision very early in my life that I would not carry the burden of secrets and shame. Talk with Sherry Lynch of the Bob and Sherry show that's syndicated in over 40 stations across 50. America. Oh, we're up to 50 now. Yeah, we're oh, over 50. Look at that. Wow. 50 stations, as well as the Armed Forces Radio Network. You know, the thing is, in 1999, because you're so open with your your life and everything, in 1999, in the Charlotte Business Journal, which is about business, hence the name, was the headline, A New Man in Sherry's Life. And I went, this is the Charlotte Business Journal, and this is the headline. And I went, oh, my God. So like, much tea in the Business Journal, I know. Right? I'm like, like <laughs> but that's how open you were with your life, that even the Charlotte Business Journal was writing about it. Like, did you did that ever concern you? Like even the Charlotte Business Journal was, was almost like the National Enquirer. Well, it was awkward when um, that marriage ended, for sure. Like one of the dark sides of living your life openly is your mistakes are out on view too, and you have to be you have to be ready to. I mean, that's you know that's the deal, and that's the deal that you cut. That was the math that I put out there. So if I'm going to put the good stuff in my life out there, I also have to take the the heat when I make a mistake. And I make those so plentifully that I'm always taking some kind of heat for something or the other. But, you know, again, um, I think you're right. Bob and I knew when we started the show that we were... There wasn't a name for it back then because reality TV was only just starting to bubble up. So I grew up as a teenager with shows like The Real World on MTV, but we weren't calling those reality TV yet. That was just The Real World on MTV. So we knew that we didn't want to do a show that was like jokes and bits and stunts and characters. We wanted to do a show that was like holding a mirror up to the audience. And we just assumed that, well, everybody's life is a hot mess sometimes. And that was the direction we took the content in on the program. But it is a double-edged and very sharp knife. Both of us have had loss, tragedy. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've made really terrible mistakes. And we've had to, to do all of that. We couldn't hide from any of it. Which, as awful as that may sound, is actually the hugest blessing. Because your mistakes are where you grow. And when you can't hide from them, you've got no choice but to do some of that very painful, excruciating growing. And so, you know, you hope you've grown just a little bit by the fact that you've been a hot, sloppy mess in public for your entire adult life. Uh, Okay, so everyone knows that listens to your show on a regular basis and your podcast that you now have got your master's in social work. But what I'm interested in is 
when you deal with victims of domestic violence and so forth, do you find it easier? Do, first of all, do they know who you are out of the shoot? And, and if they ask, do you tell them? But And if they do know who you are, do you find it easier or harder for them to communicate with you and for you to help them out and work through their issues? So the answer to that is it, it depends. Um, I think of myself as a social worker who has a radio job as opposed to a radio professional with a social work degree. Because I think social workers are born. It's a way of um, being in the world. It, it was something that I always was. That, that kind of person who is who I always was, a person who leads from a place of empathy and believes strongly in the power of change and redemption, who believes that people have the capacity to solve their own challenges and problems and that communities themselves are the experts in what those communities need to move forward. That's always who I was. Social work training put a put a label on it and put you know, put some boundaries around it and shaped it and helped me helped me manage some of my own like over involvement and tendency toward getting so consumed that I burned out. So let me say that for all the social workers that are out there, you know who you are. You were born that way and then you just got some some book learning. So when I was doing my clinical training as a social worker and it was in community settings, hospitals and um, shelters and whatnot, agencies, sometimes people knew immediately who I was. And with almost maybe one or two exceptions, it helped us build rapport because they felt like they already knew me and they the, the version of me that they knew was a person who owned mistakes, you know? Like, hey, my life isn't perfect. How could I sit here and judge your situation I am the child of a meth cook. I was abandoned at 12. Who am I to think I'm better than anybody, right? So on the one hand, it really helped build rapport. Um, But very often in those same settings, the people that I was privileged to come alongside, um, however briefly, had no idea who I was. I was just one more person coming into the room. And in some cases, you know, people are in active addiction. They're battling uh, a really difficult, chronic, serious mental illness, and they're they're scared. They are at the end of their resources, and so anybody that shows up that can be even remotely compassionate or helpful is welcome. Now it does. It did get challenging for me because um, there there are times when it is so critical that people understand that their confidentiality is protected. And because of my day job, that was difficult at times. And I had to choose, I had to choose, am I going to go full-time into the helping professions and social work and clinical mental health? Am I going to stay with the radio? And I, I knew I couldn't have it both ways. And some days I'm not sure I made the right decision in staying with radio um, but Bob wasn't in anywhere near ready to retire, and I didn't want to leave the show with with him high and dry. And I love, 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 love what I do on the Bob and Sherry show, and I love the people I work with. So it was a super hard decision, Brett. And, and I just keep telling myself that it doesn't have to be permanent. Like mm-hmm. one day I will be able to 
be full time in that in that other world. Saw so a quote that you said in 2006. The worst advice you ever got was, "Don't quit your day job." Women hate other women in radio. Yeah, I was told that by a radio programmer. Women do not like other women on the radio. Women will hate you, and you're, you're going to fail. Well, see that to me that doesn't seem accurate. Like that, it's not that, accurate. That sounds seems so far out in left field. Like I would assume women who I know nothing about women, and I know nothing <laughs> about radio. I would assume women know women would like other women on radio as opposed to the same reason why women prefer women gynecologists. I just assume that's what they would want to hear. Um, you know, when I started in radio, I had no radio experience. This is I'm still working at my first radio job, right? <laughs> which is amazing. Which, which is amazing. Like it people, really is. People should come and rub me for luck or something because <laughs> it's just unheard of in our industry. Um, when that guy said that to me, it didn't – I had no facts – to argue because I knew nothing about radio. I had no data, but I had my gut level intuition and experience in the world. And that is like women, women have been like my everything, you know, like I would be dead without my grandmother, my sister-in-law, my, my girlfriends, the women that I look up to in the work world, women are everything. And we love each other, and we can't get enough of each other. And I couldn't understand why that would change when radio was brought into the mix. But that thinking is the reason why this industry is still such a god-awful boys club. Mm -hmm. Because there is that perception. There's also a lot of confusion about the lives of women who listen to the radio. I used to get told all the time early in my career, women don't want to hear anything, you know, that's too real or too challenging. Like, have you ever seen a woman in the wild? Have you ever, like, tiptoed up to one in the wild and didn't spook her and engaged her in conversation? Because when you are a woman, everything in your life, your elbow's deep in what's real. Your biology demands it of you. Everything about a woman's reality is real. We do we like some escape? Yes, we do. But this idea that we are fragile, delicate creatures that have to be shielded from the world is a fantasy. I actually have another friend whose wife actually called you the white Oprah. <laughs> that's the greatest compliment ever. Like that's what they think of you. It's like because I'd be the you're plaid so real. Oprah. I yeah. would love that. Because Oprah's they because going back to what we talked about at the beginning, but how open and honest and real and you know Oprah was very public about her struggle with weight and how she never got married to Stedman and everything else and you've been very public with your situation and they called you the white Oprah. Well, a lot of the the um messages that women receive in culture and media are so even when they're presented as being positive, they're so toxic and soul crushing. Like here's the thing. Um very few you know, even even celebrities in magazines, they're, you know, like, oh, she's just one of us. And it was like, here she is with no makeup, bitch. I can see the bronzer on your face. Like, I know you're wearing makeup. Right, right. Can we not pretend that um, it takes a lot to present ourselves in the world as we're told women should present ourselves? And, you know, everything is challenging for women. We're not supposed to, we're not supposed to be too loud and we're not supposed to be... We're not supposed to get old and we're not supposed to be this weight or that weight. And we have to dress a certain way, but not too much of a certain way. And it's all the rules and all the unspoken expectations that are on women 
are heavy and hard. And I refuse to contribute to that. I refuse to add to that burden. Um, Because I know how much it weighs on me. And I, I know other women that I work with and other women in my life that I love. I see how it weighs on them. So I'm always going to call BS on that stuff. And here's what's sad. Why is that like such a novelty act in radio? Yeah. Like I shouldn't be a unicorn. There should be like a gazillion of me, right? Yeah, you're the purple squirrel. But there you go. That's the industry. All right, coming up next on Off the Beat with Brett Jensen, more relationship talk. And this time, the situations revolve around me and crazy things that happened during the Christmas break. I've never had anything like this happen to me even close. You'll definitely want to stay tuned and listen. That's coming up next. All right, everybody, welcome back to Off the Beat with Brett Jensen. Okay, so in this segment, we always like to talk about relationship stuff, and sometimes I like to give advice or talk about things that I've experienced during my life of dating. Well, something happened over the holidays that just completely and truly caught me off guard, and I never saw it coming. Back in 2009, me and my fiance broke up three months before the wedding. Well, I guess accurately, she broke up three months before the wedding. So we broke up on February 4th, 2009, and our wedding was scheduled for May 16th of that same year in St. Lucia. And she basically gave the reasons because I traveled too much, which I was traveling all the time. And I was gone 16 straight days, and I missed Christmas, New Year's, and her parents' 40th wedding anniversary all in that span of 16 days. And when I came back from being on the road, she was like, you know, I I can't do this. She has a great job. She said, do you expect me to maybe quit my job? Do you expect me to try and raise this kid by myself. And she goes, you know, who knows if you're going to be around for their first birthday, first T-ball game, first dance recital. So I understood it. I wasn't happy, but I was, I understood it. And shortly thereafter, this is when I was living in Athens, Georgia. And shortly thereafter, I moved back to Charlotte, my hometown. So we every once in a while would text message back and forth. We never spoke on the phone. It all stopped right around 2011. And the only reason I know that was because I believe that was the last season of House. House was our TV show that we watched together. And even though she was living in Atlanta and I was living in Charlotte, every once in a while, like maybe once a month or whatever, I'd get a text message clear out of the blue. Hey, what'd you think about that episode? And we still have not spoken over the phone. I've not heard her voice since that February of 2009. The last time we spoke and saw each other was February 13th. All right, so fast forward to 2018. I'm sitting at the house. It's 12.05 a.m. on a Tuesday night, the week before Christmas. So it's exactly one week before Christmas. And all of a sudden, I get a friend request on Instagram because I have my Instagram account private. And the only thing I knew, because she's never had a Facebook page. She's never been on social media. She doesn't do Twitter. She doesn't do anything. But yet, she's, now she's got an Instagram page all of a sudden. Sends me a friend request on Instagram, my ex fiance. And I have not spoken to her or had contact with her since 2011. And here it is getting ready to be 2019. I didn't know what to do. It's like, do I accept it? What do I do? Because like I said, I got my Instagram on private. So in order to see my stuff, you have to request me. Sort of like a Facebook thing. So I accepted the friendship. And I knew she had gotten married. I had heard she had gotten married. But I didn't know to who. I didn't know how long. I had just heard she had gotten married and was still living in Atlanta with her ridiculously high-paying job. So I start scrolling through her Instagram page at 12 o'clock at night, and I have to be at work at 7 o'clock the next morning. Well, I was getting no sleep that night because I still had a lot of feelings for her. Like, I was crushed, 
crushed that she broke up. She's the only person I've ever been engaged to. So I'm looking at the Instagram page. I'm like, something stood out to me. There's only like 15 photos. And I went back to her first post and checked the date. She'd only been on Instagram maybe a month. And she immediately sent me a friend request. So now I'm following her. She's following me. We still have not communicated at all since February 13th, 2009 in terms of voice. Like I said, the last time we texted was in 2011. So I immediately started posting all my best pictures on Instagram. Like immediately. Like I'm not even joking. I swear to God, this is the truth. So I immediately said, okay, I got to put my best pictures on Instagram. I get me, oh, I'm at the Donald Trump rally. I'm covering this. I'm covering that. Da-da-da-da. Put my best pictures. The hurricane pictures. Everything's going up on Instagram. And before that, I had like five pictures on Instagram. I, I just, I've had an Instagram account for years, but just never posted on it. It was always Facebook or Twitter. So I immediately just started pumping up the pictures on Instagram. Well, Christmas Eve, I put a picture of my dog wearing reindeer antlers and a collar. And the reason I have my dog is because of my ex-fiance. I was in love with her dog and her dog was a golden retriever. So when we broke up and I moved to Charlotte, of course, I went and got a golden retriever. Well, her dog died tragically, and she went and got another golden retriever. So she's got a golden retriever still. I've got a golden retriever. My golden retriever is nine and a half years old. Like I'm not joking when I say I moved to Charlotte. First thing I did was get a golden retriever. I moved into my place August 4th. I got my dog August 9th. True story. So on Christmas Eve, I put up a picture of Maggie wearing the reindeer antlers with a little Christmas collar with jingle bells on it. And I'm not going to hit any like button. I don't even want her to know that I'm like scouring her pages. Like, dude, I'm not going to be, it's like being the first person to say, I love you. Like, dude, I am not doing that. I'm not doing anything like, no, but yet I'm throwing up photos left and right to make sure that she's seeing what's going on with my life. She hit the like button, the little heart button on Maggie and her reindeer antlers. And it popped up, liked your photo. And I went, oh, yeah. Now I know she's looking at my photos. Now I know for a fact she's looking at my photos. Like, All right, I got this. Meanwhile, I forgot to mention this part. She's still married, and she has an eight-month-old. She never wanted kids. She, she was always a career woman, never wanted kids. And now she has an eight-month-old. I'm like, all right. I'm still not going to like any of her photos. I don't want her to know that I'm still looking at them because apparently, you know, I'm in middle school. Finally, about a week ago, I liked her first picture. She put two pictures up, one of the baby and one of her and her sister. I didn't like the photo of the baby. I liked the one of her and her sister. I've asked around quite a few people, and I even talked a little bit about this on a show one day. I said, what does this mean? What does this mean? What does this all mean? And I said, here's how I want to break it down. I only want women to call the show for this segment, every single woman to a T. And I took about eight phone calls, and lines were just lit up, and I couldn't get to them all. Every single woman said, she still cares about you. You still mean a lot to her. A couple women said, you know, hey, she's having second thoughts now that she's had a baby. Maybe a little postpartum is set in. She's still thinking about you. I'm like, okay, great. Then the next segment, I only had guys call in. Every single guy to a T. Every single one. And the guys kept calling the show even after I wasn't taking any more phone calls from guys. Guys were still calling the show saying, run away, delete her, get rid of it immediately. She's playing games with you. She wants to do this. She's maybe trying to get back with you. She's got her husband. She's got an eight-month-old. 
deleted immediately, deleted immediately. You've got to run. She broke up with you once. There's no reason to say she won't break with her husband trying to go back to you, greener pastures. So, so obviously, since I liked her photo last week, I haven't unfriended her. So here we are in this dilemma with no contact in years. Then all of a sudden, she sends me a request, a friend request on Instagram. I'm not going to lie. I was excited. I was happy because I never got over her really, like at that moment. It took me a long time to move. As a matter of fact, after we broke up, I didn't go on a single date for a year. Not one. Not a single date for over 12 months. I think, as a matter of fact, it was like 13 months before I went on my first date because we broke up in February. I moved to Charlotte in June. And I didn't go out on another date until I want to say it was March of the, of the following year. Like, that's how long it took me to get over this. And then at 12.05 on a Tuesday, the, day before, the week before Christmas, I get a friend request on Instagram. So I'm not exactly sure what this all means on her end. If she's just trying to be friends and nothing more and nothing less. Hey, Brett, look at my new life. I've got a baby. Maybe it's that. There have been no messages. There's been no communication other than her hitting a like button and me hitting a like button. That's it. I'm not hitting another like button until she does. If she does. If you've got any thoughts, I'd love to hear from you about that because I am someone who's experienced just about every situation there is to experience in the world of dating or relationships. And I can't even begin to tell you about this because this involves social media. Stuff like this wasn't around in the 80s, the 90s even really in the early 2000s. Like there was no such thing as Twitter until 2008. There was no such thing as Instagram until after that. Facebook, it was always MySpace. And then Facebook broke away from the college ranks and we all know the story of Facebook. But again, so this is all a little relatively new. And I know the biggest thing that you can do to hurt someone if you break up with someone is to unfriend them or block them. It freaks them out. It freaks everybody out. Oh yeah, trust me. Trust me, it's like, Oh my God, that's like the final blow. That's like the stake through the heart because you always think there's a chance of getting back together as long as you're still friends on Facebook. But once that unfriend and block situation happens, you know it is officially done. You just put the sand over the grave, put the tombstone up because that relationship has died. So if you've got any thoughts, I'd love to hear from you. You can follow me at Twitter at Brett underscore Jensen, J-E-N-S-E-N, and tweet at me because I always respond and I always reply back. So again, if you've got any thoughts, I'd love to hear from you. All right, well, that wraps up this week's show. Again, thanks to Sherry Lynch for joining us. She's of the Bob and Sherry Show, over 50 stations all over this country and all over the world on the Armed Forces Radio Network. I really hope you enjoyed it. And by the way, part two of my Sherry Lynch interview is next time. Stay tuned for that. I'm Brett Jensen, and you've been listening to Off the Beat. Monday, it's a new episode of All Rise, the legal drama where one judge is shaking up the system. When I take the bench, I'm taking a vow to fight for justice. One case at a time. Your Honor, we're going to trial. Simone Misick is Judge Lola Carmichael. Up on that bench. Everything is different. A new episode of All Rise. Freedom is at stake. It's important. Followed by a new episode of Bull, Monday at 9, 8 central on CBS.